You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, if this is your first time to Stonegate, uh, you have walked in on us and at the kind of the back end, this is part number seven and our final sermon in a set of sermons called Prayers, where we have been outlining some of our vision and values of our place and then giving you specific things to pray in light of those vision and values. And so this is the last one of those. And, uh, and this is really what I want to do today. I, I want to uh, allow us to walk through some scripture in hopes that God will put it inside of our hearts, the possibilities that come about when men are faithful to God and trusting in the power of God. Just the possibilities that are created in that. So, so as we pray the things that we've been outlining over the last six or seven weeks, that we would actually know that we're praying to a God that can do them. Like we're praying to a God that can actually accomplish those things. So, so this is where we're going today. So Acts um, is where we're going to be. And so I, I'm actually going to start in Acts chapter 2. So you might want to just stick a thumb in Acts 19 and, and flip over to Acts chapter 2 with me. Okay, now before we start reading in Acts, I think it's good just to remind all of us of what the Bible is. The Bible is not a fable and it's not fiction. Like the, the Bible deals with what God has done in history. This is, what the, this is what the Bible is telling us, what God has done. And listen, he doesn't need to embellish any of his stories. He needs to embellish none of them. So, so it's an accurate story of what God has done in history. In other words, these are real people that we're reading about. It's real life situations. And this is a real God interacting with, with these people in their situations. I just want to remind you of that. We need to remember that these are actually things that God has done, right? Acts chapter 2. When you get to Acts chapter 2, the first three or four verses, here, here's the context. You have got uh, the disciples. They are in an upper room and they are praying. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God falls in that room and comes and meets them in that room with such force that, that here's how they describe it. That it sounded like a tornado was ripping through the room. That, that is what the Spirit, I mean, it was so tangible that this is what it sounded and felt like in the room. And that they were infused and filled with the Spirit. They began to speak boldly. And then you keep reading in Acts chapter 2. And you've got probably the most famous sermon in the history of the church. Peter stands up and preaches at Pentecost. And in verse 37, you see the outcome of that sermon. So Peter stands up, filled with the Spirit, stands up, preaches. And then here's what we find in uh, verse 37 of Acts 2. Now when they heard this, this sermon that the Spirit of God just empowered, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's a response to a sermon right there. What, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all of you who are far off, every, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. In verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, can we have a moment to talk about this? There is a part of me when I read Acts chapter 2 that says, I mean, this is just from the, I mean, bottom of my soul says, yes, I love what I just read. 
God just flexed his muscle. God just visited a group of people. And and like literally their response after the sermon is, what do we have to do to be saved? What do do we do? And and he tells them in that day, 3,000 men and women, or or men actually, so you've got women that aren't even in the calculation here. So 3,000 men are saved in that day. And and like, this is like 3,000 people on their way to hell. Hell is terrible. On their way to hell, and God rescues them in a moment. A 30-minute sermon, 3,000 men saved. There is a part of me that says to that when I read it, yes, that is a visible picture of the power of God, and I love reading it. And then there is this other part of me that says no. There's this other part of me that I read stories like this, and just to be honest with you, I'm really frustrated. I mean, just to be honest, I read it and I say, no, I I am like frustrated. And I would call this like a sanctified frustration or a holy discontent. Because maybe I can say it this way. I'm sick and tired of reading about it. And I would really kind of like to see and taste and experience more of it. Right? And so so it's just, I I would call it just a sanctified frustration that says this. If, If we read about it in all of these places, why can't we see some of that? If God does that in Acts chapter 2, why can't we trust and plead and pester God to do it like in our present day world? I mean, why wouldn't we? I mean, it it leads me to this question of just asking God, if that is what you did in the past, why can't we see and you do that in the present? Why can't we? Let's let's keep going. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Acts chapter 3, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at them, at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get, rise up, get up, and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Seriously? The, the guy is born with a defect. He cannot walk. In a moment, the Spirit of God comes in great power, and his legs work. And it just makes me ask the question, why wouldn't we be praying with faith and and passion and just pestering God like crazy to do some of that around here? Like, if God has done that then, why couldn't he now? It's just trying to ask the question, I mean, should we, in light of what we're reading in Acts, shouldn't we be pestering God for more? Shouldn't we be frustrated with not seeing more? Shouldn't there be kind of a holy discontent resonating in every one of us that says, God, we want to see and know more of you. I mean, we want to see your power poured out around here. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. The disciples, they're they're up in a room and they're praying, and this is what it says. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with, with boldness. I love prayer meetings, but I would like really, really, really like that prayer meeting. I mean, I would love to, to be in a place where the people of God are praying passionately for God to do incredible things and the Spirit of God drops and falls and comes in such power that literally it feels like the building is about to come apart. I mean, this is what we're seeing here. And, and, and all I'm trying to raise is if, if this is the God that we see in the Scriptures— I think it would lead us to start praying for more of that. Like if God has done that then, why wouldn't we be praying and pestering God for more of that now? And and we can keep going here. The book of Acts is saturated with it. In Acts 8, you've got Philip and Samaria, incredible things going on. But go ahead and go to Acts chapter 9 with me. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Acts 9, verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come up to us without delay. So Peter rose and went to them. And when he, when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, all the windows stood beside him weeping and and, uh, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. You know, when you're reading Acts, it's almost as if God is saying, hey, read that. And I actually want you to believe that I can do anything. Like, I actually want you to believe that there's nothing too, too big for me. I actually want you to believe that I can raise people from the dead. I actually want you to believe that there is no disease, defect, it, that there is nothing that's beyond my power. I actually want you to believe those things. I actually want you to believe that, that a guy can stand up and preach, and in a moment the Spirit of God can fall and 3,000 get saved. I actually want you to believe that nothing is, is beyond me. I actually want you to believe that. I actually want you to pray with that sort of faith, with that sort of expectation that nothing is beyond me. Now that takes us to Acts 19, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, where we are about to see the Spirit of God fall, not just on a person, but on an entire city with great power. We're about to see a revival break out in Ephesus. So so here we go in Acts 19. Acts 19. Here's how it starts, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, both passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, just a couple of quick words about Ephesus. Ephesus was a large and important city. So it was estimated it had somewhere between 200 and 300,000 people. So you're talking about a really large area. And, it, and it's an important city, a fairly modern city. They have uncovered an, a, a, an amphitheater in Ephesus that would have seated about 25,000 people. So, so you're talking about a huge city, a, a metropolis. You're, you're talking about that sort of a thing. And it's a very spiritual people that lived in Ephesus. Much like our day, there were very few atheists and a whole lot of idolaters. 
and, uh, and they're kind of idol of choice. If you're a Roman, you would have called her Diana. If you're a Greek, you would have called her Artemis. And this was their idol of choice. It was the god of protection and fertility. So you can just imagine the wild sort of practices that surrounded the worship of this god. Craziness. But, but this is what you've got. In Ephesus, everything is tied to this Diana or Artemis. Their whole economic system is tied to her. Um, she was housed in uh, the temple of Diana, which was a seven, like one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you've got a city that is really built around, economically, socially, around the worship of, of this god, Artemis. Okay, so this is, this is Ephesus. So this is where Paul is, wh- where he finds himself, and then you keep going here. And it says, there he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Can I just read that one more time? No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. They might be Baptists. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe. I am one, so I can kind of poke fun. Verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So let me just break down what's happening here. The start of the revival that we're about to read through in Ephesus, the, the start of the of a incredible work of God came about when some really religious people met Jesus. So, so here's what you have. You've got people, these really religious people following John, really religious. They, they got the, the John piece. They're just missing what's primary, Jesus. They got part of it, just missing what's primary. So, so they're really religious people, but the problem is they're really, really lost people. And this started, the meeting Jesus started the revival that we see in Ephesus. Now, I think there's a word here for our culture, because in our little cultural context, Dallas, DFW area, we are this. We, we are the religious people who just don't have what's primary, just don't have Jesus. We're very, we have a very religious culture, but a really, really lost culture. We've got the externals down. People show up at church. People even value church to some degree. People bring their Bibles. People will quote a verse when it's necessary. People will live fairly moral lives. They know when to stand up at church, when to sit down, when to cheer, when to applaud, when to sing, when not to, when to do it all. We've got the externals down. The problem is we're missing the internal. We've got all of these externals down like to a T, but we are just like strangely missing an actual love for Jesus around here. Like, this is our culture. And and I think that there should be, like, a little bit of a personal application to this this morning. That that if we want to see a work of God, I mean, just to do some really incredible things in our area, what what if that starts with religious folk that show up at church, know a lot about the Bible, can quote you a lot of verses? What what if that starts with them getting saved, actually meeting Jesus? And, you know, every time I stand up to, to preach in, in our culture, I've just always got this aching sense of, man, I just always think that there's a lot of people that's about to hear what I say, totally agree with it, totally affirm it, totally think they're right with God when they just never met Jesus. And I just wonder if that's any of us in the room today. I mean, we look great externally, but internally there's just no love for God. There's no love for Jesus. There, there's not a heart that's panting after Jesus. So everything we see that started in Ephesus 
started with 12 religious people getting saved. Oh, for some of that around here. Amen? So it keeps going here. Verse 8. Starts out with two words here, and he. Now that he is Paul. So we're talking about Paul. And I just want to, I want to just set the context when we're thinking about Paul here. That I think it's really easy to look at any sort of big biblical heroes and think they are in like a separate category of humanity. Like there's all of us and there's them. And listen, that's just not true. There is not an all of us and a them thing. Paul is an ordinary guy. If he were to go out to lunch with you today, he's going to look like you. He's going to speak like you. He's just, an, he's just a guy. But he is a guy who was saved dramatically by the grace of God. He, he was a guy who actually was faith-filled, actually believed God was who he said he was, actually believed in this God that we see doing all of these crazy things. He was actually a faith-filled guy. He actually like believed these things. And he was a faithful guy. He, 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 get, he was giving his life away to advance the gospel. He's faith-filled, he's faithful, but he's just ordinary. He's a normal guy, just like you, just like me. He, he's just normal. Nothing extraordinary. Faithful and faith-filled. So it says he. Keep, keep reading here. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That's what you call preaching. Preaching. That, that is speaking boldly, reasoning, persuading. This is what all of us are called by God to do with our lips with people. In our neighborhood, among our friends, to reason and persuade, to do everything we can to convince people for Jesus. To persuade people for Jesus. To speak well about Jesus. This, this is what Paul gave his life to. Advancing the gospel. This is what it looks like to be faithful to kingdom advancement. Okay, now, now let me just stop and, and pause here and say this. What we're about to see happen in Ephesus does not come apart from faithful men and women. It does not come apart from people praying for great things to happen. It does not come apart from people actually living in a way that demonstrates the gospel and speaking in a way that declares the gospel. It does not come apart from that. So, so just as an application of that, if we want to see great things happen around us, do you know how that always begins? It begins in the heart of God's people as they begin to pray passionately for God to do those things. Them living faithfully to God, faithful to the mission of God, giving their life away for gospel advancement. It never comes apart from that. When you see revivals break out, revivals break out around Paul's, around people who are praying faith-filled prayers that God would do something extraordinary. So we've got Paul. And, and he's preaching, he's persuading, he is going after it. And let me just, if we see God raise up Paul's in the first century in, in Acts 19, why wouldn't God be willing to raise up men and women now who will be praying faith-filled prayers for God to come and move and do extraordinary things and faithful people, people willing to give their life away for gospel advancement? Why wouldn't God do that here? Like, why wouldn't God do that among us? Raise up men and women to pray like that and to live like that and to believe like that? I mean, why, why wouldn't he? If we see it there, I think it would be right for us to pray for that here. And then it keeps going here, verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, and just as a quick aside, anytime you're preaching the gospel faithfully, there's always going to be opposition to that. Not everyone's going to like it. If everyone likes it, you're not giving Jesus to them. 
And uh, in, in light of that, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Jews and Greeks hated each other. So you see what's happening here? You've got racial reconciliation starting in Ephesus. People are no longer like looking at people through the social lens, through the economic lens, through the racial lens, but through the sinner saved by grace lens. And could we not use a little bit of that around here? Hmm? For people to, like, it's not, it's not white, black, brown. It's sinner saved by grace. That is the dominant lens. And then we keep reading here. Verse 11. So you've got a faithful man, a faith-filled and a faithful man, Paul. And then here's, you, here's what you have in verse 11. First four words. And God was doing. Let me just reiterate this. That none of the stuff we see here is, is because of Paul. It's not because Paul was faithful that God did these things. I'm just saying this. God always raises up faithful men before God starts to do things. So the work that we see in Ephesus is a work of God, not of Paul. This is God sending his spirit with great power upon a place. It starts out, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. We're talking the spirit of God landing on a place with such force that diseases are cured. Issues are no longer issues. Defects are no longer defects. Are you seeing that? I mean, I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, yes, I love reading it, but God, would you please give us some of that? We could use that around here. We are in need of that around here for your spirit to come with that sort of power among us. So this is what God was doing, these extraordinary miracles. Then we get to verse 13, and this is one of the most comical scenes and weird scenes in the Bible. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, who knew that was a job in the first century? I mean, what, you, you ask your kids, what, what do you want to grow up to be? Well, an itinerant Jewish exorcist. That's what I'd like to be. I mean, what is that? And so um, it says, They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by this Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And then verse 17, or verse 14, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house, really awkward scene, naked and wounded. I, I cracked up listening to a guy talk about this recently. And, uh, I mean, if you could think of the fifth grade playground scene. Do you know that moment where two fifth grade boys lock horns and they are going at it? There is a brawl on the playground. And you know when the brawl ends, there's always, like, discussion about who won the fight. I mean, that guy had him in a headlock for a minute. They bumped chest for, like, 30 seconds. I mean, you've got all of this, all of this debate about who won the fight. Well, let me tell you when you don't have a debate. When one guy shows up with pants on, and leaves stripped naked. You have no debate on who won the fight. It's clear in that moment. And these guys lost. But, but look at this verse um, 15 here. This evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And can we please, by the grace of God, get some huge gospel-soaked ambitions for our life and our church and the few short years that God would give us to live that would actually make us knowable to the kingdom of darkness? Amen? That we would actually have ambitions that would be known by Satan, actually be known by his little kingdom and his little opinions. See, the, the reason that these seven sons of Sceva weren't known is because they were no threat. They were doing nothing to kind of shake the foundations of the kingdom of darkness. But you don't know why they knew Paul? Because Paul actually was. I mean, just when I think about our church, man, it's just, it's praying. And it's a sober prayer. It's not a lighthearted prayer. It's, it's praying that, that God would, would be about using us in such a way that we would be about dreaming and praying faith-filled things in such a way that it would get at the core of and shake the foundations of the kingdom of darkness. But I pray for that, that we would be known in that context, that our church would be, that your family would be, that my family would be. And then you've got verse 17. And this is where repentance and revival is about to go crazy. This is where Ephesus is about to blow up. And and revival, when you think about this word revival, it is an outpouring of the Spirit of God where, where repentance, personal repentance, goes widespread over a large geographic area. Revival is not one person getting saved. Revival is when a whole cultural climate of a city meets Jesus in such a way that everything changes about that city. So this is what we have happening in Ephesus. Okay, so so work with me here. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, all the stuff that just happened, both Jews and Greeks. And then here are five marks of revival. If you want to know what what revival looks like, what it looks like when it breaks out, here are five marks of it. Here's the first one. And it says, and fear fell upon them all. Here is mark one of a work of God, like a revival, an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon an area, is there is a reverence and an awe of God. A reverence that this awe of God is reestablished. Like we begin to look at God with a new lens. We begin to see God with, with better clarity. Like the God that's presented in the Bible is actually the God that we're seeing now. It's this reverence to God. We, we begin to look at God with this new set of glasses, this new lens, and we're actually seeing that God is other than us, that God is all-powerful. We're, we're beginning to see the size and the scope and the majesty of God. We're beginning to see that. See, this is what happens when revival, when an outpouring of the Spirit hits a group of people, is they begin to see a new picture of God. And do you know what happens when you begin to see God with accuracy? Do you know what happens? your heart begins to fill with awe and reverence. Your heart begins to explode with a reverent fear of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he has written extensively on revivals. He was a pastor in England uh, back in uh, kind of the middle of the 1900s. And he said this about when when uh, an outpouring of the Spirit of God hits a place and revival breaks out, he says this, they, the people, immediately become aware of God's presence and God's power in a manner that they have never known before. The people present begin to have an awareness of spiritual things and clear views of them as such that they have never had before. And then he says this, I love this phrase. He says, and spiritual things become realities. Spiritual things actually become tangible, real things. See, this is the problem that a lot of us have with God right now in the room. Is it is totally an abstract 
non-tangible, theoretical thing that we're thinking of with God. But when God pours out his spirit upon a people and sends revival to a place, do you know what happens? What's in theory, what's abstract becomes tangible and gritty and earthy, and it becomes real to us. Like God actually becomes tangible and real. We begin to see him like that. And that was happening in Ephesus. Do you you see this in in verse uh, 17? And fear fell upon them all. That all is toward the whole city of Ephesus. All the residents. So he's saying, generally speaking, when you take the two to three hundred thousand people that make up this city, that generally speaking, there is a completely new way an entire city is seeing God. That there is a a reverence and an awe of God that's been reestablished in the hearts of people. Now, now wouldn't that be something to see here? For God to do that here? Like, there should be something in you that's saying, I love seeing that in Ephesus, but I don't live in Ephesus. I live here, and I want to see that here. I want, I want, God, I want you to do that here. Please, God, will you pour out your spirit in that sort of a way here where people see and recognize and have this, this awe and reverence of you reestablished in their hearts. But there's another mark of revival. It's a recognition of Jesus. Look at the last part of verse 17. So it's not just that this reverence of God is reestablished. Last part of verse 17, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Revival comes about as a group of people recognize Jesus. As a a group of people recognize Jesus. See, in the presence of an all-powerful, huge, big, holy God, Jesus looks really, really good, doesn't he? His work for us actually becomes great news for us. His imperfect life, or his perfect life, lived in place of our imperfect one. His death on the cross for our sin, his resurrection, actually becomes great news because it secures for us in front of that huge, majestic, holy God, it secures for us a friendship. It secures us right standing. It secures for us adoption, that we're actually sons and daughters of that all-powerful, huge, big God. See, revival never comes apart from Jesus, only in Jesus. Revival happens when a, when a widespread geographic area starts to see Jesus as the only way to God, as the only way of salvation, as their only hope in life. When people start to see Jesus as beautiful, that's when revival starts to happen. And it was actually going on in Ephesus. City, 250,000 people. Across the city, there is this whole, I mean, 250,000 people blown up with Jesus, recognizing who Jesus is, the way of salvation. You've got this incredible scene happen, and wouldn't we love to see that here? Can you imagine across like the DFW area, God pouring out his spirit like this? where there is general widespread recognition of, I need Jesus. Can can I just ask us, why wouldn't we pray for that? Why wouldn't we? In light of God being all-powerful, why wouldn't we pester God like crazy to do that sort of a thing here? Third mark of revival. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came 
confessing and divulging their practices. Mark number three of, of, of a revival is conviction and confession of sin. See, it's, it's not just people seeing their sin. It's people feeling the weight and sobriety of their sin, the seriousness of their sin. It's not just people recognizing sin as sin. It's people actually being repulsed by sin. It's when a people actually start to see sin from God's perspective. That they start to see how offensive it is to God, how it breathes death into people. We start to see it from God's perspective. And you have an entire city of Ephesus starting to see sin like that. Confessing sin to one another. Throwing out all of their sin. You've got an entire city who is feeling the weight of sin, the seriousness of sin, seeing sin from God's perspective. And could you imagine what would happen if God poured out his spirit like that around here? Where our, like our DFW, there was widespread recognition of sin and there was a repulsion to it in the hearts of people. Can you imagine that? And it just makes me, it just makes me ask again, why would we not be praying for the Spirit of God to come like that now? If God did that in Acts 19, why would we not be pestering God for it now? Mark number four of revival. Verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic art brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's roughly six million dollars. So, so here's what you've got happening here. Mark number four is there is a commitment to Jesus. There is not only a repulsion and a recognition of sin, but there is an active turning away from sin and a turning to Jesus to the point that these people gathered up all of their magic books, everything that was kind of identified with their old way of life, threw them out in the street and they had a book burning party. It would be the equivalent of every man in DFW throwing out his stash of Playboys out to the middle of the road. And in light of last week, every lady, their little 50 Shades of Grey stash, all of that goes to the middle of the road and you burn it. Now, I'm not like, I'm not trying to, to condone or even encourage book burning. I think a trash would do just fine. But you see the point of what's going on here. You have got a massive move from sin and everything identified with an old way of living and a massive move toward Jesus. And listen, that is citywide. I mean, could you imagine that? For that to go down here in this day and age where you've got an like a widespread geographic area, thousands and thousands of people who are loving Jesus like that and hating sin like that. Mark number five of the gospel, or of revival. Verse 20, the gospel advances with great speed. And I love verse 20. It's kind of a summary statement of what's happening in Ephesus. It says this, so the word of the Lord, or the gospel, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's a summary statement. It's just saying this, that the power of the gospel, like the Bible actually calls it the power of God, it was showing itself to be powerful in Ephesus. It was breaking down walls in Ephesus. It was moving mountains in Ephesus. Like the, the, the power of the gospel was actually showing itself. God was flexing his muscle in an extraordinary way. That's what he's saying here. 
that it is prevailing, it is advancing mightily. And, and so much so that look down in verse 23. Here's the illustration of how deeply the gospel had gotten into the fabric of Ephesus. Verse 23. And remember, you've got a whole social kind of economic structure in a city tied to idol worship. And, and here's what happens. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, uh, you know that from this business we have our wealth. In other words, they're profiting on idolatry. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. How do you argue the other side of that? Yeah, I mean, God, if you, you just made it. How is that a god? I mean, it should be fair. And, and by the way, you can just see here the ridiculous things we start believing when we're away from Jesus, can't you? And so we've got them in our culture too, by the way. So, so he goes on to say here, saying that God's made with hands are no longer God's. How, how dare Paul say that? Verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, can you see what just happened here? Now think with me. A whole little social economic system tied to this temple. These people are making their money on idols. And you know what's happened? The gospel has gotten into the fabric of Ephesus to the point that you could no longer profit on sin. You could no longer do it. You could not profit on an idol. I mean, there's no law pronounced over Ephesus that you can't do it. This is what the gospel does when it is poured out in great power upon a place and a people. Can you imagine in DFW if, um, not because the law was passed, but because the Spirit of God poured out in such an extraordinary way that uh, if you owned a strip club, you just went out of business. I, not because of law, but because people didn't show up to it. Can you imagine the whole like pornographic industry being shut down, not because of a law, but because people just stopped buying it? This is what's happening. This is the sort of thing that we see happening in Ephesus. It was impossible for these people to go on profiting on idolatry and sin. They couldn't do it. A love for Jesus had totally turned upside down the whole economic system, the whole social system of a city. And it just makes me ask the question, could God not do that today? Could he not? And you know, it's, it's so funny when I just think about that issue and want to pray for that, there's something deep inside my soul that says, is God really that powerful? I mean, could God really do that? The answer based on Acts 19 is, yes, God can actually do that. I, that is not more powerful than God is. God can do all of those things. And it just begs the question, should we not be praying for that then? In light of Acts 19, should we not be praying that the Spirit of God would be poured out in such a way that, that you could not profit on sin anymore? I think so. I, I think Acts 19 is an invitation for us to pray with that sort of urgency and passion and faith in that. Fully expecting God to do that sort of a thing. And listen, this is not, and I want to pull this out of just biblical 2,000 years ago history and, and just to, to present a case that that's happened in church history, not just biblical history. So in the early 1900s in uh, Wells, 
There was a revival that swept across that country that saw thousands and thousands of people converted. I mean, you have an outbreak of the Spirit that was phenomenal. Churches swelling like crazy. Um, there, there's a story told of one lady that was a, she was a, a wife on a farm. She led personally 70 of her neighbors to Jesus. She had this incredible outpouring of the Spirit. So much so that one kind of revival historian said this about this revival in Wells. He said, drunkenness was immediately cut in half and many taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished that judges were presented with white gloves, signifying that there was no cases of murder, assault, rape, or robbery or the like to consider. The police became unemployed in many districts. Now, how would you like that? The police just lose their job because there's nothing for them to do. It goes on. Stoppages occurred in coal mines. Now listen to this. Not due to unpleasantness between management and workers, but because so many foul-mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul language that the horses which hauled the coal trucks in the mines could no longer understand what was being said. Could we get a little bit of that around here, please, God? Like today. Are you seeing that? It is an outpouring of the Spirit of God where the, the fabric of the society is changed. The culture is changed. And why wouldn't we be praying for that? And listen, this has been an American history as well. The period between seven, roughly 1740 and 1840 is known as the Great Awakenings. And that 100-year period has shaped America in so many different ways. You had revival break out across the Northeast, and it spread for, all over the place from there. Jonathan Edwards, it's widely kind of attributed to the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached in the Northeast um, called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God that, that started this whole awakening and revival. And it was interesting that over the next six months from that sermon— that, that in Edwards, where, where he was pastoring his community, 30% of the people were converted over the next six months. That would be the equivalent of 10,000 people in Midlothian becoming Christians over the next six months here. I mean, we get the picture of that. 30% of the area became Christians in six months. He went on to say this about um, his kind of geographic area. He said, There was scarcely a person in the town, either old or young, that was left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Wouldn't that be something to see? Old, young, that you couldn't find a person that's not concerned about life, death, things that are to come. I mean, wouldn't that be something? And listen, this is the whole, it's, a, it's a, almost a pointless sermon. This is the only thing I'm trying to say this morning. Is if God has done this in the past, why would we not be praying and pestering God and pleading with God to do this now? Why wouldn't we be? Like if he has really sent Jesus to live perfectly in our place, to die on the cross for our sin, if he really raised Jesus from the dead, I think it would be sin for us to ask smaller things then why wouldn't we expect God to do incredible things now? Why wouldn't we dream of those things, have gospel-soaked ambitions for those things, be pleading with God now in the present to do those? If he's done it in the past, why not the present? So this really all for me came to a head, and I'm going to finish with this, came to a head uh, for me this summer. Back in, uh, this was in June, uh, Laura and I went to a pastor's conference in Southern California, 
And uh, in that conference, in the middle of all that, exposed to, to Acts 19, and God just began to stir up in me some huge ambitions. Like a, a picture of, okay, if this, is, if this is God, then what does that mean for now and, and life here in our church? Like if God is the God of, like if he's really the God of Acts 19, what, what, does, that, what does that mean now for our lives? And so, um, so that started the process. And, and in the midst of that uh, roughly four or five day conference, um, it was also our 10th anniversary, Laura and I's 10th anniversary. So I was able to take Laura um, from Southern California. We drove up to Yosemite and got to see uh, Yosemite. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I, I don't know that there would be a more beautiful place on earth than, than that. It is unbelievable. Um, you, you, 1,400 foot waterfall. I mean, just it is a picture of the power of God at work. And then we drove over to San Francisco and down the coastal highway back to LA. Don't know if you ever made that trip. If you ever get a chance, you need to put that on your bucket list and make a point to do that at some point. You've got these huge mountains that collide with the ocean and you're driving on the boundary of it. It is unbelievable the views that you see there. I mean, it, it is a tangible picture of the power and the size and the scope of the God of the Bible. We're driving down that coastal highway back to LA, <clears throat> and it was as if I had a tangible moment with God in our car, where I, I've just seen Acts 19, I, I've just um, went to Yosemite and saw Genesis 1, I, I'm just driving down the coastal highway, seeing Genesis 1 again, and, and the Spirit of God just impresses upon me, I mean, it would be as next to an audible voice as I would know of God to speak. And, and he basically is asking this question. Rodney, do the size of your prayers match the size and power of your God? Do they match? Like, like the God who, who can just breathe and bam, a 1,400-foot waterfall in Yosemite exists. A, a God who can speak and you've got mountains and oceans. A God who says, I am willing to do Acts 19. I've done it before. Do, do your prayers, the way you're praying, what you're praying for, does it match the size of your prayers? Do they match the size of this God that you're seeing here? Does it, does it match? And here was my answer in that moment. No, they don't match. The, the, the size of this God and the size of my prayer, there is a serious problem, a disconnect between those two. And in that moment for me, here's what happened. I feel like that there was a switch that got flipped there of me saying, no more, no more. If God is who he says he is, I'm going to pray like that. I'm going to believe like that. I'm going to have faith like that. I'm going to expect like that. Like if God is really who he says he is, it's going to reorient not just the way I live, but the way I pray. It's going to reorient all of that. I mean, I pray that for you. I pray that for our church. It, it's reoriented the way I prayed for our church. This whole series, series was really born out of that moment of just trying to put things before you that would be God-sized things to pray for our church. And let's end it with this one, number seven. In light of the power and the size and the scope and the, the willingness to God to do Acts 19 stuff, prayer number seven. Why don't we start praying this with passion, with faith, fully expecting God to do it. Is God, will you please, like in Ephesus, 
turn our city, our neighborhoods, our social circles, turn them upside down with a love for Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Before we sing and uh, finish by responding to God through song and communion, I just want to give you a second to sit in that and allow the Spirit of God to press into your soul the things that would be most helpful. And if you are not a believer in the room, if you're kicking the tires on this thing, you've never held up your life and said, God, save me. I I want you to know that God is powerful enough to save you this morning. That God is willing to do that. that. That some of us in the room are really religious and we're still really lost. We've just never met Jesus. Some of us in the room are, are, we have come from the rough side of the tracks, and our life, when you look back over it, is just one immoral act after another. And you can't imagine how a God would save you. And can I just say that God is also powerful enough to save you. That his grace goes to the religious person and the irreligious, to the moral and the immoral. And God will save both of you. And so if that's you this morning, I just want to make sure that you've got some urgency into that, that you're playing for keeps in this thing. And this would be a wonderful day for you to step across the line of faith, to hold up your life and say, God, save me. Man, I pray that that would would be true for you today. And for those in the room that, that you are a Christian, you are part of the family of God. Here's what the good news of Jesus, his broken, broken body that we're about to, to do communion. It's going to be symbolized there. His body that was broken for you and his blood that was spilled for you. Do you know what it, do you know what it secures for you? Especially in light of this all-powerful God that we're reading about in the scriptures here. Do you know what that secures for you? His, his broken body, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection secures that, that all-powerful God as your all-powerful father that you can crawl up in his lap and he delights for you to ask big things from him. He delights in it. He invites it. He tells you, come and pester me. Plead with me. Man, that we would be a people who do that. That the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, his body broken, blood spilled for us. It, it allows us to do the Hebrews 14, 4, 16 thing. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. We can know that this big God has pledged himself to work for our good. So when we pray, we can go praying with great expectation, great faith that God is actually going to hear and answer. And so God, in your grace, will you help us God, will you fill us with great faith? God, will you visit us with an outpouring of your spirit? May we get to see some Acts 19 around here, Midlothian, Dallas. God, will will we get to see that? Will you do that? God, because of Jesus, we're praying expectant. We're praying believing.
full of faith that you will. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.